Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 what's cracking? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie, and this segment of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio is being brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Make sure you go and check the website out. Tonight, we have a really great show for you. Um, have Dr. Paul Conant on. Uh, he wrote a book, very enlightening book when it comes to fluoride, called The Case Against Fluoride. We're going to discuss a lot tonight, a lot of different players in this, and uh, things were brought to my attention, a book that I read, and there were players uh, in that book who happened to be in the, the case against fluoride, and we're going to discuss a lot of that tonight. If you have not gone and in the archives and listened to the shows, go back and listen to last week's show. We did 10 Steps to Detoxification with Dr. Janet Starhall. There was a lot of aha moments in that show for me because there were some things that I didn't know about when it came to detox. We mentioned something um, called French green clay, which I had no idea about. I was familiar with bentonite clay, but I didn't know anything about French green clay. And you may want to go back and listen to that show, especially if you are someone who is suffering from obesity. If you have weight issues, Uh, Dr. uh, Hall gave a lot of good tips in there For people who are suffering with weight issues, just seems like um, the gamut, it it runs the gamut of our society where a lot of people are suffering with a lot of different uh, weight issues amongst other illnesses. And that can definitely be tied back to not having a clean body and you need that detoxification. So go back and check that that show out with Dr. Janet Star Hall. Also, please connect with me on social media. Things are starting to build, a lot of momentum going here. Um, I have some people who are in the Facebook fan page. If you have not joined my Facebook fan page and you're out there listening, please do. I am looking at building this community and bringing you the latest information. My Facebook uh, address is Facebook slash I'm the Fat Man. So Facebook.com slash I'm the Fat Man. You can also connect with me on Twitter at the Fat underscore man and then on Pinterest is I'm the fat man the number one you connect with me on there as well all right so we're going to get into the show but before I bring Dr. Conan on I just wanted to say a little bit about fluoride it's in our water supply a lot of people have just grown up with fluoride they don't know why it's in our water supply there have not been a, a ton of studies done on fluoride so we just seem to go along and just take what we're given. You know, we go to the dentist, the dentist cleans our teeth, he puts that fluoride on there, and we think that we have that kind of what I call the seal of approval where it's going to save our our teeth. But tonight, we're going to dive deep into fluoride and discuss it a whole lot. Um, without, Let me read Dr. Connett's bio just before I bring him on. Paul Connett is a graduate of Cambridge University. He holds a PhD in chemistry from Dartmouth College. After teaching chemistry and toxicology for 23 years at St. Lawrence University, Canton, New York, he retired from his full professorship. After this, he helped to found the Fluoride Action Network and became director of American of the American Environmental Health Studies Project. Dr. Connor wrote the book Zero Waste Solution in 2013. He also assisted the city of Naples, which I'm hoping that's Naples, Florida. That's right down the street from me, in pursuing its zero waste strategy. He also co-authored The Case Against Fluoride, which we'll be talking about tonight, how hazardous waste ended up in our drinking water and the bad science and powerful politics that has kept it there. 
Without further ado, let me bring on Dr. Paul Conant. Dr. Paul Conant, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Darren, very much. Uh, just a couple of points. Uh, it was Naples, Italy, by the way, where I helped them okay. start a zero-waste strategy. And, uh, yeah, and, and the book, The Case Against Fluoride, is it was written by three people. And that's probably mm-hmm. one of the most sensible things I've done in 20 years on this issue was to choose James Beck, MD, PhD from Calgary, and Spetty Micklem, a doctor of philosophy and biology from Oxford, um, who taught in Edinburgh University for many years, um, to co-author the, the book with me. So we had a retired professor of chemistry, a retired professor of physics, who also had an MD, and a retired professor of biology. And we made sure that every fact and argument that we put in that book was documented with the scientific literature. There's 80 pages in all. But I still think mm-hmm. it's readable. You've just done it readable by a lay person or a fairly intelligent person. You don't mm-hmm. have to be a scientist, to, but I wish more scientists would read it. But like many other people, they've been frightened off this topic by being constantly labeled by the media and it, oh, these shills on the uh, web pages and so on who describe people opposed to fluoridation as uh, flat earthers, uh, uh, kooks. You know, every name under the sun they, they use against us. And that that keeps a lot of respectable academics and doctors away from the literature, which is exactly what you want if you're promoting this foolish practice to keep intelligent people away from the scientific literature. Because anybody with an open mind that reads the literature on fluoride and fluoridation would be appalled about what we've allowed to happen in this country for 70 years. Yeah, and those gentlemen were mentioned on your bio it just so happens that when i get on the air i completely forget how to read and i forgot, yeah. to, I forgot to, to say something about that but um before we get into any of the questions to me fluoride is not one of those what i would call a sexy topic it's not something that we want to discuss because it's not sexy how did you start down this road of really pulling the strings to learn more about fluoride Well, I didn't want to get involved with the issue. In fact, um, I was so busy teaching chemistry at St. Lawrence University, and I'd got involved with waste management in 1985. So for 30 years, really occupied my time. I didn't want a third issue. And at least three people approached me to get involved with fluoridation between 1985 and 1996, when my wife finally succeeded getting me involved. And they were from Spokane, was one from Ontario, another person from Ohio. But I resisted, as I said, because I was so busy with these other things, and I did not want to to get involved with an issue that would stigmatize me as Looney Tunes. I had fallen for the you know, the the prevailing paradigm that people opposed to fluoridation were crazy. But my wife put a nice cup of tea on my desk one afternoon in July the 6th, 1996, and said, dear, would you read these papers? And I mm-hmm. said, what is it? And she says, fluoridation. I said, take those away. These people are crazy. But she persuaded me to read these documents because that evening, the council, our little village council of Canton, New York, was going to revisit this issue because the equipment had uh, had corroded out and they needed to replace it. And the mayor thought that this would be a good occasion to revisit the issue to make sure that people still wanted this. And I remember walking that night to the village council meeting after having read this stuff. And when I did read it, I was humbled. I mean, I, I just suddenly realized what an idiot I'd been being taken in by this notion that people opposed to Florida were crazy. Because they weren't. I mean, there was very serious uh, issues in, in uh, when I read. Uh, but one in particular was there's no known use for fluoride in the human body, no biochemical use for it. On the other hand, it's very toxic to a lot of biochemical processes. Uh, and so I was appalled that we should be putting that in everybody's drinking water. And then if you wanted more ammunition, the level of fluoride in mother's milk is extremely low. It's about 0.004 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, 
maybe as high as 0.008 parts per million. And what this means is that a bottle-fed baby in a fluoridated community is getting over 100 times, maybe 200 times the level of fluoride in mother's breast milk. And I don't think that nature screws up that way. I mean, if fluoride was necessary for anything, you'd expect to find it in mother's milk, baby's first meal, but it's not there, or very mm-hmm. little. And so what this means is that when you fluoridate, you're, you're, you're taking away nature's protection of the newborn baby. And that's a reckless thing to do. So armed with this information, when I was walking to the council meeting, I said to my wife, I said, you know, this one's going to be easy. When they hear what I've read this afternoon, I said, there's no way they're going to continue this. Well, you know, another one of those occasions where I've been outrageously wrong. Uh, It took us another, (laughs) I think it was seven and a half years before we were able to get it out of our water. And one of the most striking things at this meeting was that people in the audience, when the, the issue was being discussed, were getting up and saying things like, well, I'm not a scientist, and I don't know the, the issue very well, but my dentist tells me it's okay, and if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And then they were also saying the same thing. Uh, you know, I don't know the science, but my doctor tells me it's okay, it's safe. And I trust my doctor, so I'm going along with that. Well, I went up to one of the doctors at the meeting and said to him, I proffered him three papers I'd read that afternoon. I said, would you read these three papers? He said, I don't have time to do that. Well, I said, that's not being very responsible. I said, just, you've just heard these people saying that they're going to go along with this because they trust you. And he said, well, I don't have time to read everything in the literature on every subject that comes across my desk. And I said, look, I quite understand that. Don't get me wrong, I understand that. But I said, you shouldn't leave the impression with these people that you've actually studied the scientific literature on this subject. And it's your professional judgment, your professional judgment that it's safe, because that's what the people are thinking when you tell them that. And, you know, that was a very, that was the first day of my involvement 20 years ago in 96. And that, that, that discussion with this doctor was a microcosm of what I would see over the next 20 years in all the main fluoridated countries. I've seen the same thing in Australia, in New Zealand, in Israel, in Ireland, in Canada, in the United States, in England. You will get dentists, doctors, local health officials, state health officials, and federal health officials getting on a public platform and assuring people that fluoridation is safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. And yet, when you discuss it with them, it's obvious that they haven't read the literature. And all they're doing is to parrot what they've been told by professional bodies who really, by and large, have not studied the issue independently. They, in turn, are parroting what they're told by the government a uh, mm-hmm. government health agency, the Department of Health and Human Services, which uh, in, in 1945 was the Public Health Service, that endorsed fluoridation in 1950. And then in, in the next year or two, um, all those professional bodies endorsed fluoridation. But the, the, the joker here is that in 1950, when the U.S. Public Health Service endorsed fluoridation, they didn't have a single trial had been completed. They'd started three or four 10-year trials, but none of those were completed. They were halfway through. They started in 1945. Nor was there any substantial literature or any significant literature on health studies which could have convinced them that it was safe. So they had neither scientific information that was effective or safe. And yet, the Public Health Service endorses fluoridation. And within two years, every professional body in the United States, for dental and medical and public health body endorses fluoridation as well, still with no science on the table. table. So it certainly wasn't scientific in 1950. And when the promoters today get on a platform and say, oh, it's safe, it's endorsed by A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and so on, most of those organizations that are citing endorsed fluoridation back in the 1950s when there wasn't any science. 
So it's it's just a, an absolute sham. It, it's it's smoke and mirrors. It's certainly not scientific. It's certainly Dr. not scientific. It never was. Yeah, Dr. Conant, um, I wanted to go back and just ask you a quick question. And my background, I come from the pharmaceutical industry, and if I had a dime for every conversation that I had with a doctor about a drug that they should not be prescribing, and they said that what you said, that, that they didn't have time to read this, then I'd probably be a millionaire right now. But what do you what do you think actually keeps people believing that we need this uh, substance in our water? Is it just afraid to go against the status quo, or do they – just deep down believe that it's really safe without even reading any any studies. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, most people have no idea about fluoridation, none at all. They probably do not know whether their water is fluoridated or not. Uh, for many people, this is a very, very old issue. Uh, for many people, it triggers the uh, Dr. Strangelove, the uh, notion that fluoridation is a, a communist conspiracy, so they, they have a joke at our expense. Um, it annoys me when really respectable journalists play this trick on us using Dr. Strangelove, a movie made in 1964 to negate a book that was written in 2010. Anyway, um, well, first of all, here are the reasons why it continues. Number one, the mainstream media in this country is doing a lousy job at informing the people. It's very, very superficial. They fall for... Uh, government propaganda and the, the Dental Association propaganda. They don't get dig beneath the, the surface. So the media is not informing the public. There are some except, uh, exceptions here. Newsweek has has written three three articles in Newsweek over the last few months, which have been excellent. One covered a story about fluoride and hypothyroidism from England. Another story covered the uh, a study which showed an association between ADHD and fluoridation. That was a study done in Canada, but it was using U.S. data, and also covered the fact that um, the Cochrane, the Cochrane Review System, uh, the, which is highly respected, it's, it's more or less the gold standard for review of meta-analysis in medicine. You know, looking at the best science and um, scientific evidence. And they reviewed the studies which were purported to show that fluoridation actually reduces tooth decay. And they came back and said, essentially, the studies are lousy. Uh, they wouldn't pass muster, most of them. They're not grade-age studies. They're not um, double-blinded. They're not randomized. In, in short, there's been not one single randomized control trial on an individual level to demonstrate that either fluoride is either effective or safe. The very studies that the FDA requires for a new drug before they allow it on the market, they require the drug companies to do RCTs, randomized controlled trials. And they have never done these for fluoride. And one of the reasons that they've never done these for fluoride is the FDA has never regulated fluoride for ingestion um, for reducing tooth decay. Never done it in 70 years. And so it, here's a major uh, re federal regulatory agency which simply has not done its jo job. And when you consider that, it's absolutely monstrous, isn't it? Here you have the most prescribed drug in American history going to over 200 million people in their drinking water every day, and it's been going in their water for 70 years, and it's never been regulated by the FDA. And to make matters worse, there's no agency, there's no federal agency in this country that takes responsibility for the safety yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of this practice. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that was one of the things that I kind of found, uh, I would say, appalling in the book because when I came upon that chapter and I was reading it, I was like, wow, there's no agency that actually takes responsibility of what is going in our water, not the, what, the ADA, not the CDC. No one actually takes any responsibility. How is that? Yeah, well, here we go. Let, let's go through them one by one. I've said that the FDA has never regulated fluoride, and that's the one you would expect to do it. <coughs> so they, they've washed their hands of it, the FDA. They do regulate toothpaste. And if you go to the back of a tube of toothpaste, they make your hair stand on end. 
<laughs> remember, it says um, drug facts, drug facts. Keep out of the reach of children under six. If you should um, accidentally swallow more than a, the recommended amount, which is a pea-sized amount of toothpaste, contact, get medical help or contact a poison control center. Now, the pea-sized amount is, contains about a quarter of a milligram of fluoride. And that's the equivalent of a 250 milliliters of water, a large glass of water. So imagine Monty Python taking hold of this thing. You'd, 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 the Monty Python, they would put a notice over your tap, keep out of the reach of six-year-olds. Mm -hmm. If you should accidentally swallow a, a glass of this stuff, contact a poison control center. I mean, it's, it's laughable. That's if the FDA was consistent, but of course they don't have to be because they don't regulate fluoride waters. That's number one. Number two, the Center of Disease Control, or rather the Oral Health Division, which is only 30 people and they're all dentally trained, <coughs> their job is to promote fluoridation. They're all essentially dentally trained, so they're, they're like the adjunct of the ADA. You've got the American Dental Association, and you've got the CDC Oral Health Division, and it's like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Whatever the ADA says today, the CDC Oral Health Division will, will say tomorrow. And anyway, their job is to promote fluoridation. That's their mandate. And, and they're spending, over the next three years, I think they're spending about $60 million of taxpayers' money to try to fluoridate every last remaining town that's hitherto escaped fluoridation. They'll be after them with the taxpayers' money. And it's one thing if they were actually gave balanced information to the public, but they don't. They give outright propaganda, um, which is disgusting. Then you get the EPA. Now, the EPA is indirectly involved with fluoridation, but not directly. It's indirectly involved because the EPA regulates contaminants of water. That's their job. They have to set safe drinking water standards for contaminants. Now, these contaminants could be in the water because they're naturally occurring, like fluoride and arsenic and others, or they could be there because they've, they've come from pollution, some industrial effluent. So the EPA has to maintain uh, up-to-date standards for all these substances. And it just so happens that one of those contaminants is fluoride, which is also, of course, the additive to fight tooth decay. So although... EPA does not have, is not have a regulatory position to regulate additives to water and is supposed to have nothing to do with regulating things which are to do with health, you know, and uh, so here is an additive which is added to fight tooth decay. The EPA has no regulatory authority over that. But if the EPA was to do an honest job and a scientific job, and use the most sensitive endpoint to fluoride's toxicity, which is either lowering of thyroid function or lowering of IQ, if they used either of those endpoints, the level of fluoride which they would deem safe to protect everybody would immediately force a halt to water fluoridation because having about one part per million fluoride in the water would be way over the safe level that some children should be getting right now but they won't do that they 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 are beholden they the the epa gives every appearance of being beholden to the department of health and human services um to protect this program so there are a lot of people in this country right now are more concerned about protecting this practice and their reputations and their their credibility by keeping this nonsense going then they are protecting our health. And that's pretty tragic when one of the things that they should be protecting is the mental development of our kids because there's no question that fluoride is neurotoxic. We've got over yeah. 100 animal studies which shows that fluoride can enter the brain, interfere with brain chemistry in quite a number of different ways. We mm -hmm. have experiments which shows that fluoride interferes with the learning and memory of animals and we have now 45 another study published yesterday 45 IQ studies which show an association between lowered IQ in children and um, exposure to fairly modest amounts of fluoride certainly 
no margin of safety from the levels which we know cause lowered IQ or suspect cause lowered IQ based upon these studies, and no adequate margin of safety to protect American kids uh, drinking fluoridated water and getting fluoride from other sources. No margin of safety. Yeah, I wanted to back up real quick and because as, as a kid and going to the dentist and, and getting fluoride on my teeth, I always felt like I was it was the grandest thing. But when I began to get up in age and get into like middle school and they would, they would explain to us like fluoride was in the water, I was like, okay, my teeth are really protected. And I thought that there was some guy with a white lab coat uh, at the <laughs> water place and he's sticking pharmaceutical grade fluoride in there. What kind of fluoride are we actually receiving in our water? Yeah, well, there's two things on this. Let me just say something you didn't ask me, but I will say it now. One mm-hmm. of the one of the issues which has really um, complicated this and it's self-serving is the way that promoters confuse concentration and dose. So, yes, we've got people at the Waterworks who are very carefully monitoring the quantities of fluoride that they're adding to the water, the concentration. So they keep it pretty tight, somewhere in the region of 0.7 to 1.2 parts per million. So they can control the concentration in milligrams per liter. But what they can't do is once you put this stuff in the water, you can't control the dose because you can't control how much water kids drink. And you can't control the other sources of fluoride that they get, the quantity they get from toothpaste, swallowing toothpaste, the quantity they get from food, pesticides on food, etc., etc., etc. So they can control the concentration, and they make a big meal of that. But they can't control the dose, which is very serious when you come to, to drugs. You've got to be able to control the dose. And, you, uh, and also, once you put it in the water, you can't control who it goes to. It goes to everyone, which is another no-no in pharmacology. And finally, you're violating the individual's right to inform consent, which is a, a no-no as far as ethics is concerned. But to come back to your question, is it pharmaceutical grade? No. They couldn't afford to use pharmaceutical grade sodium fluoride. So what they use is an industrial waste product. They literally take the scrubbing liquor, untreated, mm-hmm. the sc- untreated scrubbing liquor of the wet scrubbers from the phosphate fertilizer industry. Now, this whole thing is bizarre, and most people won't believe it the first time around. They have to see the evidence. But let me stress, what I'm saying now is absolutely true, okay? The first thing is they can't dump that scrubber liquor into the sea by international law. Second point, they can't dump that scrubbing liquor into the local streams or lakes because it's too concentrated. However, if someone buys, buys, purchases that scrubbing liquor, under the hazardous waste regulations in the United States, it stops being regulated as a hazardous waste, and it becomes a product. And at that point... Our water authorities can put this stuff, this product, not a hazardous waste, this product into our drinking water. Now, in addition to it being a substance called hexafluorosilicic acid or its sodium salt, this scrubbing liquor contains a number of toxic metals and non-metals like arsenic, arsenic, lead, mercury, a number of other things, only trace amounts. But the problem here is that there's no safe level for human carcinogens, and both arsenic and lead are human carcinogens. So we shouldn't be adding any of those to the water. Um, are, uh, Dr. Khan, are those being yeah. found in the water? If you look at the studies, uh, they're saying that even pharmaceutical drugs are in our water. And I, I was going to ask you that question, um, if – do does fluoride interact with this? Like I, I remember in the book, it said something about lead. But does it interact yeah. with other other carcinogens like the lead and the arsenic that's in that might be in our water supply right now? Yeah, not quite, perhaps not quite the way you mean. But yes, uh-huh. um, first of all, the fluoride, especially this hexafluorosilicic acid, interacts with chloramine, a disinfectant in the water, and the mm-hmm. mixture dissolves lead from brass fittings. So in mm. addition to the lead, which is actually in the, 
in the scrubbing liquor itself to a small extent. It also, the, the stuff actually leaches out lead from the brass fittings. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is that fluoride forms complexes uh, with every metal ion except the group one metals, the group one metals in the periodic table, lithium, sodium, potassium, rubidium, and so on. Uh, apart from those metals, it forms complexes. And what this means is it can increase the uptake. It has the potential of increasing metals uptake um, uh, from the gut and, and getting it into tissues. For example, there was one study done with animals in which the animals were treated with one part per million fluoride in their drinking water for a year, and they found kidney damage, a brain damage, and a greater uptake of aluminium uh, into the brain, and beta amyloid deposits, which are sought to be connected to Alzheimer's disease. But mm -hmm. the, the interesting thing is that, that they weren't adding in one case, they had three groups of animals. One group of animals, they initially added aluminum fluoride. So it wasn't as a surprise to find aluminum in the brain of those animals. But what was the surprise was in the group that was treated with sodium fluoride at the same level, one part per million fluoride, there was aluminum in the brain of those animals. And so what had happened there is the fluoride in the water that the animals were drinking was facilitating the uptake of aluminum in the chow, in the animal chow. And that's scary. You know, it, uh, a big thing with, with uh, protecting the human body is the limitations that some, some species have in crossing the membrane, you know, getting through the wall of the cells. But if you form complexes which change the nature of what the membrane sees. Now, in this case, if you think of aluminium, it's a, a, three, a triple E plus positive metal ion. It's a highly charged positive metal ion, and they aren't easy to get across membranes. You need special transport systems to get across. But the, cell, but the tissue doesn't see that. It sees aluminium tetrafluoride, ALF4, which has a single negative charge, looks like phosphate. And so that may be the way it gets across the membrane. And one of the membranes which is particularly protective is the blood-brain the blood barrier, mm -hmm. which keeps out a lot of things. The brain is very, very selective about what uh, materials can go in. It needs nutrients, but it doesn't want toxics in there. And so a lot of materials which are not toxic for other tissues are toxic for the brain. So you can see how serious this is, that, that fluoride has the potential of getting some of these toxic metals into the brain. And we're talking about other things, maybe mercury as well. So if someone has got mercury fillings, amalgam, mercury amalgam fillings, which the ADA calls silver fillings, but they're 50% mercury, maybe the fluoride facilitates the dissolution of mercury from the amalgam and helps to get that into the, into the bloodstream and then into the, into the, into the body. It's a nightmare. If you look at it for a biochemist looking at the subject, and if there is a biochemist, if there is somebody interested in science, I urge them to read a paper by Barbier and uh, colleagues from 2012. And I, if the title for memory is something like The Biochemical Mechanisms of Fluoride's Toxicity. The Biological yeah. or Biochemical Mechanisms of Fluoride's Toxicity by Barbier et al., 2015. And you can get the, the full title. We have a bibliography on our webpage, fluorideaction.net. Go there and search under bibliography. Look under Barbier, B-A-R-B-I-E-R, -E and uh, you'll find that paper listed. It's a very important paper. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the players, because um, we, you and I were talking a little bit off, off the air before we came on. Yeah. And um, I read a book a while ago called The Plutonium plutonium files there was yes. a gentleman in there by the name of harold hodge um and i i went back and did a little timeline he started the manhattan or was part of the manhattan project in 1942 i believe yep. Yep. He, he was uh, the chief chief toxicologist pharmacologist of the manhattan project harold hodge and, yep. and yes so, and so he was affiliated 
uh, I can't even remember when the atomic bomb was dropped. Was it 1941 or something? 49, no, I think it was. The bomb was dropped to, to end 45. the World War II, 1945, in Japan. 45. But he Thank was. They, they were working on the Manhattan, the, the atomic bomb, of course, from the 1940s through to to the time, yes, it was successfully exploded in 1945. Um, He was the chief toxicologist, and his job was to study the toxicology of all the materials being used in the manufacture of this bomb. And this book by Eileen Wilson that you mentioned, The Plutonium Files, Mm -hmm. points out that these people functioning in Rochester, Rochester, um, were actually did horrible things, like injecting patients without their knowledge, with plutonium, to see what plutonium does to the human body. Literally a horrible human experiment. And the same fellow, Harold Hodge, uh, was part of the committee that, uh, that planned the fluoridation trials. Okay, so starting in the 1940s, 1943, I think it was, there was a big meeting in uh, New York City with a lot of dental researchers, and, and also industry people, a lot of people from industry and people from the Manhattan Project. And Harold Hodge was the chairman. And when the the, the experiment started, they had the first trial in Grand Rapids, but within a few months, a second trial in Newburgh, New York. The, this, they were studying children, and they were feeding from uh, Newburgh, New York, every day. The, the findings and what fluoride was doing to the children. This was being fed to Harold Hodge, who wanted to know what low levels of fluoride did to the, the human being. But he was also a big, big promoter of fluoridation. And after the, at the end of 1945, when fluoridation began to get traction, it was endorsed in 1950, and then they started you know, fluoridating cities all over the United States. The, the, the cheerleader for this was Harold Hodge, who was seen uh, as a very respectable guru in toxicology. He's probably the most famous toxicologist in the United mm-hmm. States. And there are still these black and white films. So you can see Harold Hodge standing in front of a blackboard saying, and one part per million is safe. And it's perfectly safe, and there's no reason to delay the fluoridation program. Handsome man in his white lab coat, um, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what the promoters wanted. You know, that lovely image of the doctor or the the scientist endorsing their product, the product of yeah. the fluoridation. Didn't he, um, from your book, I, I gathered that uh, there was one section in there where he was t- uh he took someone's study and he actually kind of discredited their study. They did a stu- I think it was from another country, if I'm not mistaken, and he discredited their study saying that – or kind of like took section and rewrote their study so it would kind of uh, correlate with his own beliefs. No, I don't, I don't remember that, but I, I can tell you there's um, another thing about him which is mm-hmm. very in, in, intriguing. Um <laughs> My mind is just so trying to think of one answer, and, and I then got sidetracked. One second. Let me think of, um, oh, gee, huh. No, I, I've, uh, I, I'll come back to Harold Hodge. Let me think about Harold Hodge for a second, and mm-hmm. what's the relevant thing thing there. Um, he he really was the guru of, of fluoridation for many years, and in fact, one of the, the th- oh yes, okay, this is what I thought. The most important thing is that during the Manhattan Project, Harold Hodge was concerned about the neurotoxic effects of uranium hexafluoride. They were concerned that these workers, well, you know, they were, were manufacturing uh, uranium hexafluoride to make the bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, had to separate the uranium isotopes with this diffusion method, and, and he made this uranium hexafluoride. They were frightened that this uh, had neurological effects on the workers, which could be serious. They could cause serious accidents if, if these guys couldn't think properly or couldn't act properly. And so he applied to do a a rat study to test fluoride's ability to have an effect on the brain. 
And it's pretty clear that it wasn't the uranium that was of the concern. It was the fluoride that was of the concern. And so he, he asked for money to do a rat study to study the neurotoxic effects. And first of all, he got the go-ahead. And then within a few weeks, they said, if you haven't started that project, don't start it. And if you have started it, then stop it. For somebody at the higher ends of the uh, got cold feet about studying the neurotoxicity of fluoride. Now, run the clock forward to the 1990s, where you find that a, a scientist called Dr. Phyllis Mullenix was brought into the Forsyth Dental Center to use a technology that she had developed, which was able to look at the neurotoxicity of substances by injecting an animal and putting the animal side by side with another animal which wasn't injected with the substance or given the substance in its food and watch them with video cameras from the top and from the side and the videos were fed into computers and the computers could analyze the, the behavior patterns of the animal. And mm -hmm. through these analysis of the behavior patterns, could they could tell whether the animal was hypoactive, underactive, or hyperactive. So she was brought into the Forsyth Dental Center to become the chairman of the first toxicology department in any dental school in the United States to use this technique to look at the neurotoxicity of the chemicals used in, in dentistry. And one of the first chemicals that she looked at was fluoride, not expecting anything, because like everybody else, she had been told that fluoride was good for teeth and no, no problem. But to her surprise, when she did the experiments, she found that the animals that were exposed before they were born were hyperactive, according to her measurements, and the animals uh, after they were born, they were exposed to fluoride, they were hypoactive, underactive. And when she published that study, uh, she was fired. The chairman of her department said, uh, fired her as soon as it was accepted for publication. And wow. she hasn't had a job in academia since. But here's the interesting thing. Back to <laughs> Harold Hodge. Because Harold Hodge had also been brought into the Forsyth Dental Center. And every day he would go up to Phyllis's lab and look over her shoulder to see if, what progress she was making with this animal neurotox study so i mean here you can imagine the fascination this guy wanted to do these experiments with animals neurotoxicity in animals in the 1940s and he has to wait for 50 years before he actually sees the results of a neurotox test on the animals or maybe he knew maybe he knew and maybe he wanted to find out whether the, the Phyllis would find out the same thing that he already knew. But it, uh, if he had known it, he obviously kept that away from the, the public. And he never let on to Phyllis. He never let on to Phyllis mm -hmm. that he, um, he had been interested in doing the neurotox stuff in the Manhattan Project. He, he wasn't very talkative about the Manhattan Project at all, apparently. Yeah, so he never really did any studies. He just waited up all, all the way up until what, like the 1990s, before he found out the effects of the uh, the fluoride. And here he was promoting it. And going back in the book, I also noticed yeah. that even a long time ago, um, medical people were using fluoride to slow down the thyroid for people who were hyperthyroid. Yes. So yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's, that's nuts. You did very well great. reading that book. You picked it up. Yeah, yeah. doctors in Argentina, France, and Germany in the 1920s, 1930s, 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s were using sodium fluoride to reduce the activity of the thyroid gland for patients with hyper overactive thyroid gland. There are better drugs today, but that's what they used in those times. And the, and the doses that we're using that were effective were easily... Um, exceeded by some people in our society, and and but nobody, nobody in any of the fluoridated countries has ever bothered to do a study um, to check 
to see if there's a relationship between fluoride exposure and especially fluoride exposure through via fluoridated water and the almost epidemic um, uh, numbers of people now with hypothyroidism. I mean, there are literally millions of uh, Americans, particularly women, who are hyperthyroid. And nobody has looked at it until this year there was a scientist in England called Stephen Peckham, who I know, and he's been working on us for a number of years, but he had some data a few years ago, but he collected a huge amount of data. He got all the data from 98% of the general practices in England. That's a lot of data. And, of, and, and that data was the number of patients in each practice who had hyperthyroidism. And then he compared those numbers with the fluoride levels in the drinking water. And yes, there was an increased number of patients with hyperthyroidism in the areas with higher fluoride levels. And if you just restrict the comparison between Birmingham in the Midlands, which has been fluoridated for years, and Manchester, which has never been fluoridated, and they often use that comparison for extolling the virtues of fluoride as ben benefits, like lo lower tooth decay in Birmingham compared to Manchester, blah, blah, blah. If you do the same thing with the hypothyroidism, but twice as many hypothyroid cases in Manchester compared to, to Birmingham. So uh, not com completely conclusive, but very uh, consistent with the animal studies, consistent with those doctors' experiences in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And there's one experiment from the Ukraine in 1986. They found uh, lowered thyroid function in, in people drinking natural fluoride at 2.3 parts per million. Well, that doesn't leave any margin of safety for people, adequate margin of safety for people drinking water at one part per, per million. A million, yeah. That's the minimum amount that they said safe? That's the one part per million? Well, no, that's, that's what they reported. They reported mm -hmm. in the, that those people drinking that water had hypothyroidism, or some of the people they looked at had hypothyroidism. And so mm -hmm. that's the lowest level that we've had, but we've had so few studies. And, and, and basically, with I mean, the simplest explanation for the outrageous science that has not taken place, I mean, it's outrageous because the science has not taken place, is simply the fact that once the U.S. Public Health Service had endorsed fluoridation in 1950, it became a policy, and they didn't want to threaten that policy by finding out that the thing that they were extolling and promoting and praising to the heavens was actually causing harm. And the best way to do that is not to do the studies to, uh, and conclude that the absence of study is the same as the absence of harm. So if you hear to this day, you say, well, if, if, this is, if this was causing the harm you were talking about, Dr. Conner, we would see it by now, wouldn't we? Well, no, you wouldn't. If it's a subtle change, if it's a few IQ points, you wouldn't see it. Um, if, it was, um, if it was a common complaint... Uh, and you wouldn't find it unless you do very, very careful studies. And we haven't done those very careful studies. But thank goodness they are doing those studies now in India and China and Mexico and Iran, are places where they've got high natural levels of fluoride, which is causing a lot of dental fluorosis, skeletal fluorosis, and now they're finding soft tissue effects. And the big one that's come through is we now have 45 studies, I think I mentioned this already, 45 studies out of 52, mm -hmm. obviously seven did not find it, but 45 did find an association between fairly modest exposure to fluoride and lowered IQ in children. And this is really serious. And uh, Yeah, it's, this, it's, it's bananas. I, I, I mean, reading the book, I couldn't um, believe it. But I wanted to kind of spin in, um, because this is something that I came across as well, uh, I watched a documentary on YouTube. Anybody can go there. It's free. It's called Century of the Self. And there was a gentleman involved. He's called the father of public, um, what, what, father of uh, public, public relations. Public relations. Yeah, I couldn't get the word out. Yeah. 
But his name is Edward Bernays, and he was the right. one that came up with all of this marketing. And there was a quote in your book. I can't remember the exact quote. I put it out on a meme on Facebook. But he said convincing people that fluoride was good for them was child's play because of people's propensity to believe what trust doctors and believe what doctors tell them. It just seems like we got a snow job all the way around. Oh, when yeah. It to well, this, this is the guy that was – he lived to 103. And he was wow. interviewed in this book by, uh, by Chris Bryson, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote the book The Freud Deception. But yes, I mean, and this guy knew more than anybody else. If you put a white coat on somebody, uh, the public would believe anything. So 24,000 doctors say smoke Viceroy or smoke Camel or something. They had doctors and dentists uh, in advertisements promoting, promoting smoking. Um, so he knew that the white coat worked, and he had, you know, Harold Hodge on the white coat persuaded everybody mm-hmm. that one part per million was safe, and so on. And, and you know, he know the story, I'm sure, that he was able to persuade women to smoke in public and mm-hmm. to smoke by marching down Fifth Avenue. Um, suffragette, no, not suffragette, these, these young, beautiful women smoke, mm-hmm. you know, parade the smoking so that. He was able to persuade women in those days, going back to the 1930s, 40s, whatever, that it was respectable and, and rather rather au fait to, to smoke cigarettes in, and smoke them in, in public. And how many people did he kill with that technique? I mean, mm. is he no shame? I mean, it's unbelievable. Looking back, it's easier with hindsight. But obviously millions of American women have died as a consequence of that little public relations ploy and how many people are being made sick and losing and kids losing IQ points because your game was successful in promoting uh, yeah. fluoridation. Um, it, th- this is my last question for you. I didn't want to keep you more than an hour, but it just mm. seems like it, we mentioned all the major players. You have the fertilizer industry. We had the relationship with Harold Hodge and the working on the atomic bomb and the fluoride. And then you have someone, a corporate entity that's still going strong today, and that's Big Sugar. What was Big Sugar's interest in in fluoride? Well, yes, this is very, very good. Remember, I mentioned this mysterious decision by the U.S. Public Health Service to endorse fluoridation in 1950 before any of those trials had been completed. They didn't wait to the end of the trial before they came. So obviously it wasn't scientific because they didn't have any science in 1950. So what could have triggered this or pressurized this decision? Well, without joining the dots, but at least let's see one of the dots. In 1949, one year before the U.S. Public Health Service endorsed fluoridation mysteriously, the sugar lobby said in its magazine, um, the sugar molecule, they said, we need to find a way to reduce tooth decay without reducing sugar consumption huge i mean i think everybody should read that phrase every day that's in 1949 well that wasn't the end of it um then the sugar lobby put an enormous amount of money over the years millions into professors of nutrition at famous universities like harvard in particular dr fred stair who went on to become the chairman of the nutrition department at harvard and to do two things one was to promote sugar and sugar products as as nutritious like coca-cola is a nutritious drink etc cookies and candies lovely um sugar was good for you and also fluoridation was good for you. They did both things, and Fred Steer testified in Congress on this and so on, and also attacked. He was very vicious with his tongue, and he would attack unmercifully. He had a, a weekly column in newspapers syndicated all around the country, and he would attack unmercifully anybody that should speak out against fluoridation, make them feel like utter idiots. He was the one that attacked Rachel Carson, one of the people that attacked Rachel Carson when she published her book. Not a, not a very savory character. Well, run the clock forward. Uh, earlier this year in PLOS, uh, a journal, and I've forgotten what PLOS stands for, but I think Mother Jones uh, summarized the article. 
it revealed from private letters correspondence that in the 1960s, the sugar lobby worked closely with the National Institute of Dental Research and persuaded them to put their money into dental research, everything but looking at the connection between sugar and tooth decay. Kept them away from this area, which was worth many millions, billions of dollars to the sugar industry. Run the clock forward to a few days ago Hmm. when it was announced that the Surgeon General, the Surgeon General said, um, basically, as far as obesity is concerned, it's not diet which is important, it's exercise. Exercise which is important. And guess what? A few days or a few weeks before, this is exactly what Coca-Cola has been pushing, um, with it becoming clearer and clearer that the consumption of sugar is contributing dramatically to this obesity and soft drinks in particular. Kids drinking gallons and gallons of sugar, sugared soft drinks. Uh, Coca-Cola sees this as a huge threat to its empire, its worldwide empire. So they are touting the line and paying scientists, by the way, you mm-hmm. know, the Fred Stairs of today, to go out and say the same thing. It's, it's exercise we want, not controlling the fizzy drinks, the Coca-Cola that these kids are drinking. But isn't it interesting that in a short period, the Surgeon General is coming out and saying the same thing? And of course, it's sickening when you see this. And, and you know, you, mm-hmm. I've had my education from this issue for 20 years now. I've been educated into what is really happening as far as dentistry, as far as things like mercury amalgams as, uh, um, and, and fluoride and so on. But one of the things that you learn is the corporate influence, I would say, in corporate control over mm-hmm. the regulatory agencies. And, and that is utterly disgusting, absolutely utterly disgusting. And, and, and you know, we, we should expect civil servants to give us the truth, ob- objective truth, and not to spin everything. But they're spinning, like the Surgeon General, on sugar and, and the, the FD and the um, Health and Human Services on fluoride and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, I don't need Sad. to say any. I don't need to say any more words. You said it all tonight. <laughs> You've officially ah. blown blown my mind, and it's it's <laughs> like I told you off air. I've been studying nutrition for ten years, and it the story just seems so familiar. The same, even with fluoride, when you talk about sugar and when you talk about different things, the story just seems familiar. That we tend to believe different things, and I I told you that. The Ansel Keys thing and the cholesterol and the saturated fat yeah. just reads really similar to this whole thing that we knew that that wasn't the cause, but yet someone pushed it through and then everybody jumped on the bandwagon and kept promoting it. And it's just yeah. it's, it's the same story over and over again. It's like that's people, right. And you've got the, you've got the story of mercury amalgams and the ADA. And, yeah. and the ADA mm-hmm. and the FDA have been Tweedledum and Tweedledee protecting. Uh, ADA from liabilities from exposing everybody to mercury from these mercury amalgams. Just just a couple of things before we say goodbye. One is, when you talk about nutrition, to me, one of the tragedies of modern medicine is how little doctors are taught about nutrition at medical school. It's quite, uh, just, it's un, it, it can't understand it. It seems so bizarre. I would have thought that a doctor needed, starting as a professor of chemistry, I would say the doctor needs organic chemistry, he needs biochemistry, then he needs physiology to see where this chemistry of living things is, which tissues is taking place in. But then when you got through there, I would have thought the next subject that the doctor needs to know is nutrition, to know the nutrients needed to keep this machine running well. But they jump over that and then um, change medicine, not from keeping people healthy, but medicine is, is treating people when they get sick. And that means that the doctors are really the servants of the pharmaceutical industry rather than the other way round. And, uh, and the second fact, which 
fits in very nicely to, with what you're saying is a shocking fact is there more lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry in Washington, D.C. than congressmen. Think about that. Yeah, More yeah. lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry in D.C. than, um, than congressmen. Uh, that's pretty shocking, pretty sad. Yeah, pretty sad. Um, real quick before I, you get out of here, and this is something I probably should have asked before, because there's someone out there listening, like, well, what are we supposed to do if we have fluoride in our water? Have you found any alternative to maybe um, – I know someone mentioned at one point um, I was listening to something else that reverse osmosis will get rid of the fluoride in the water. But what have you found that has been good to do that? And if someone is interested – two questions before I let you go, sorry. Yeah. If someone yep. <laughs> is interested in taking on this behemoth that they, they're living in a community – I live in Davie, Florida, and I know that yeah. our, our water is fluoridated – how can you start the ball rolling and say, hey, you know what, we want to get fluoride out of our water? Yep. Well, we have a campaign manager. Her name is Stuart Cooper. And I can anybody that's interested in, in learning some tips of how to organize a campaign, it's not easy. It's extremely frustrating. You're up against horrendous odds, but there are techniques. If you've got a lot of money, um, we are putting up billboards right now. It's quite an expensive thing to do, but it jumps over the media. The billboards you can see on our webpage, if you go to fluorideaction.net, the, the revolving masthead, the first picture that you see is the billboard that's currently running in Tacoma in Washington State. And it shows a young girl drinking a glass of water. It says, do you really want her drinking a neurotoxic substance? End water fluoridation. We would love to get more of these billboards around the country. We've also got a poster version of that, which, of course, is much, much cheaper. And if people are interested, they can put those around. To get that simple message out there, nobody's heard that. There's very probably less than a couple of thousand people in this whole country knows that fluoride is neurotoxic. Uh, the press is not telling them. The government is not telling them. We can tell them with these billboards. So that's that's a thing. One thing to, to do as far as protecting yourself, what we do at home, because we live in a fluoridated community, uh, we use spring water. We buy bottled spring water for drinking and cooking. Obviously, that doesn't protect you from showers, baths. It doesn't protect you from every glass of water you drink downtown, every cup of coffee, every cup of tea. So you really want to get it out of your water. As far as getting it out of the body, you mentioned something earlier. I believe, my gut feeling is that we're going to find that some of these clays, green mm -hmm. clays or bentonite clays, mm -hmm. might well sequester fluoride. There might be, we might be able to find a clay that has a little hole in there into which the negative ions will fit, like a hand into a glove. Mm -hmm. And then if you eat that clay, of course, you don't absorb the clay. The, the clay goes straight through your body, out in your poop. But if in the meantime it has absorbed that fluoride, um, then this could be a way of cleansing the body from fluoride. Because you don't have the same array of chelating agents that you have for the positive ions, the metal ions, lead, cadmium, mercury, and so on. But uh, the, the clays might be the answer. We need a lot more research on that. The trouble mm -hmm. is there's not many scientists doing research on fluoride because they're scared stiff of what happens if you find a problem, look what happened to Phyllis Mullinex. But that may be changing with the uh, publication of the National Research Council report in 2006, which I think has made the science of fluoride research far more respectable than it's ever been before. Yeah. Well, Dr. Conant, as I say with my friends, it's been real. <laughs> you definitely educated and i really enjoyed this interview and for those of you out there that are listening i hope you've been enlightened and that you will pass this interview on to people because it just seems like we just live day to day we're just existing and we don't know what's in our water supply what's in our food and you need to know because it's actually affecting you and it's actually affecting your kids but i really uh thank you for your time and if they're interested in the book they can go to amazon it is called the case against fluoride and yep. uh, again, Dr. Conant, thank you so much for being on tonight. Well, thank thank you, Darren. And I must say, you know, 
bearing in mind that the mainstream media is doing such a lousy job at educating mm-hmm. the public, it's it's stations like yours or web pages, whatever it is, blog, whatever it's called, you are doing a yeoman job in trying to educate the public. We're doing what we can with our web page, but we've got a number of folks like yourself not frightened to speak the truth and uh, not beholden to the advertisers, etc., etc., etc. Hats off to you. Keep up this good work, not just on fluoride, but on the other issues that you've mentioned. Yeah, thank you. And your, you can. I looked up your website. It's called the Fluoride Action Network. If you want to Google that, you can find that. It certainly pops up when you Google it. And uh, you mentioned another site as well, FluorideAction.net, where you can see the billboards and if you want to get posters as well. So, again, thank That's you, it. Dr. Connett. Thank you. Bye-bye, right, Darren. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, thanks. Sorry. Guys, powerful show tonight, and I, I kind of wanted him to ask, ask questions or answer questions regarding just major players. If you start to study this stuff, you'll start to see coincidences that are not really coincidences. There will be links that will lead you to different places, and you start seeing the truth. If you want to see the truth, a lot of people are afraid of the truth. They don't want to uncover the truth. But if you're uh, really looking at uncovering the truth and, and seeing what's actually going on and how different people are in bed together, so to speak, then you'll start making these correlations as you read and you study a little bit more. If you're not into reading and studying, listen to different podcasts because we, like Dr. Connett said, there are people out there who aren't afraid to speak the truth or bringing this information to you so you will have it and you can make an informed decision. That's That's the key, to be able to make an informed decision. A lot of times we just go along and accept things without uh, making these informed decisions because we just don't know. So just be in the know and um, do all the studying that you can do to make an informed decision for what's going in your body and what someone's trying to make you believe. So um, next week, I always say same fat time, same fat channel. So I made a goof and did not have anybody scheduled for next week. I didn't realize that that uh, September had 30 days in it. I don't know how I, I didn't do that, but hopefully I'm waiting to uh, hear back from someone for the week after next week. Um, we'll be talking about holistic medicine if she agrees to come on. And then the week after that, which I believe is the second week of October, will be kombucha with uh, Hannah Crum. I reached out to Hannah Crum and she will be, we'll be talking about kombucha, which is, which is really good. So that'll be an enlightening show. And then the third week, Hoping to have someone to talk about supplements, actually what's in supplements. There's a lot of supplements that are out there right now that people uh, are taking and they have no idea what's in them. And uh, looking to schedule someone to talk about the uh, the supplements. And then uh, after that, I think I'm going to be talking a little bit about thyroid, just trying to give you some heads up about what's uh, coming soon. So thanks for listening to the night. Hope you learned something about fluoride. If you ever have a question, Feel free to reach out to me at Darren at Fat. That's P H A T dash man dot com. If you like someone that you would see want to see on the show to talk about something that you are interested in, just email me Darren at Fat dash man dot com. Peace and love, and I'll see you soon. Thanks. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.